Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is perhaps one of the loveliest things George Frideric Handel gave to us, the aria Lascia Chio Pianga from his opera Rinaldo. It is performed here by the incomparable Italian mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli and the Academy of Ancient Music under Christopher Hogwood. Today on Music for Life, we will explore Handel and other composers like him who shared an interesting connection. That is, their original career paths were to become not musicians, but lawyers. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will discuss a fascinating account of how certain musicians were placed in administrative roles in the Second Temple. And in our Classroom Corner, we are going to see how music education actually prepares the student for non-musical careers and shows some famous examples. Today on Music for Life, we explore law students turned composers in an episode I've titled Passing the Bar. There is an odd thread woven throughout the tapestry of music history. Many of the greatest composers of history had families who were opposed to their choice of music as a profession and, in fact, wanted them to study, instead, law. Thankfully for us, all of them found ways to bring their families around to their desires to learn and later to compose music. Of the dozens of famous composers in this scenario, we will look at eight in this episode. Before we explore all this, though, let's get into our first segment, our Sounds of Scripture segment, where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's main theme. There is an interesting account in the time of Nehemiah about musicians of the Levitical family also being put over the temple business, which is worth noting in the context of what we are discussing today, and we will see that there was quite the drama that unfolded in this account. To set up the context, Nehemiah had ordered lots to be cast to determine who would dwell in the Jerusalem city limits. This would have been an attractive place to live, and the lots would determine the 10% of the population who would be allowed to live there. 244 of the citizens would be Levites. Nehemiah 11 shows that a descendant of Asaph would be the chief Levite in one of the musical functions. Asaph was a chief musician for King David. Notice verses 20 through 22. 
And the residue of Israel, of the priests and the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, every one in his inheritance. But the Nethanims dwelt in Ophel, and Zihah and Gispah were over the Nethanims. The overseer also of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah. Of the sons of Asaph, the singers were over the business of the house of God. Uzi, mentioned here, must have been a gifted and devout musician in order to be named by the chronicler to have such a position of authority. His lineage is traceable back to Asaph, the mentioning of which leads Nehemiah to tell us that all the singers of the line of Asaph were over the business of the house of God. So they weren't just endowed with musical skill, they had a certain business prowess as well. Nehemiah continues talking specifically about the singers several verses later. Verse 27 says, For it was the king's commandment concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers due for every day. Here is a special mention of a daily salary from the king's treasury for the singers. After all, these sons of Asaph took care of the house of God. Nehemiah 12.44 shows that some of these musicians were appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the firstfruits, and for the tithes. For Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited, or stood, or endured, or served. What an honor afforded to those who served in this way. Dropping down to verse 47, we see, And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the portions of the singers and the porters every day his portion, and they sanctified holy things unto the Levites, and the Levites sanctified them unto the children of Aaron. We see that this salary mainly consisted of natural products. Later in chapter 13, Nehemiah realizes that the Levites were not receiving their proper compensation. And I perceived, he writes, that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Verse 10. These musicians had to go back to working their fields due to this severe pay cut. They had to leave their posts as musicians and administrators in the temple, and this bothered Nehemiah. In his book, Music in Ancient Israel, Alfred Sendry says that this resolute flight has been repeatedly explained by the assumption that, deprived of their portions, the singers could not support themselves in Jerusalem, and that the bare necessities of life forced them to withdraw to their dwellings outside the city. But Sendry believes this was more like a strike against the evil going on in the temple, as the pay cut traced back to the priest Eliashib, who was in league with the ungodly Tobiah. Sendry writes, It is far more logical to assume that this strike represented a pure and simple contest of power between the priests and singers, or the evil priests, we could say. The obvious abuse carried on by Eliashib, apparently in connivance with his priestly colleagues, induced the musicians to take the law into their own hands. What no other class could afford to venture, the musicians dared to do, relying upon the power of their organization. The guild protected its members from the consequences of the risky step, and their stable solidarity eliminated the danger of any strike-breaking. So when Nehemiah caught wind of this ordeal, he dealt with it and put the temple singers back in the service they needed to be involved in. Verses 12 to 13 state, Then contended I with the rulers, and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasuries. 
At any rate, the Bible speaks of Levitical musicians who were not just skilled in musical endeavors, but also possessed an ability to administer other non-musical temple activities. They possessed a certain business acumen, and they possessed a ready understanding of the law. This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we are exploring the vast array of composers whose original career paths were to become lawyers in an episode I've titled Passing the Bar. To begin our journey through standard music history, we will start, as we commonly do, in the Baroque era. And we will discuss first the composer mentioned at the top of the program, George Frederick Handel. When George was born, his father was 63 years old. Dad was an eminent barber surgeon who wished his young son to be well-educated to increase his standing in society and secure employability. However, according to Handel's first biographer, John Mannering, he had discovered such a strong propensity to music that his father, who always intended him for the study of the civil law, had reason to be alarmed. He strictly forbade him to meddle with any musical instrument, but Handel found means to get a little clavichord privately conveyed to a room at the top of the house. To this room he constantly stole when the family was asleep." So little George became quite accomplished on both the clavichord and the organ due to his own self-motivation. Later, while he and his father visited a relative who was serving as valet to a duke, young Handel was seated at an organ where he shocked everyone with his playing. Upon hearing this performance, the duke himself convinced Handel's father to allow him to take lessons in musical composition and keyboard technique. However, obeying his father's wishes, Handel started studying law at the University of Halle in 1702, but he did not remain enrolled long. His renown for his musical skills kept him in demand as a musician. He was soon invited to Italy by the De Medicis to write operas. He composed over 40 operas in total, a sample of which we played earlier. In 1710, he moved to London at the behest of the then-German Prince George, who later became King George I of England. Handel became a naturalized British citizen and is buried in Westminster Abbey with its kings. Handel is regarded as one of the greatest composers of the Baroque era, with works such as Water Music, Music for the Royal Fireworks, and Messiah being easily recognizable by most even today. One of his four coronation anthems, Zadok the Priest, composed for the coronation of George II, has been performed at every subsequent British coronation, traditionally during the sovereign's anointing. Let's hear one more piece by Handel, an example from the period where he was writing operas in Italy for the Medici dynasty. This is from Handel's 1709 opera Agrippina, titled after the mother of Nero, who plotted to install her son as Roman emperor. Here is a chorus from Act Two of the three-act opera, Di Timpani e Trombe, which calls on the timpani and trumpets to join in festive praise of Emperor Claudio. This composition by Handel foreshadows the triumphant coronation music he would later write for the British throne. In Zadok the Priest, for example, which uses the phrase, Long live the King, in this one we have the phrase, Viva Claudio. This is a recording from the English Baroque soloists with conductor John Elliott Gardner.
that was the triumphant chorus from the Italian opera Agrippina, composed by a 24-year-old George Frederick Handel while in Italy. That was Handel's first big post as composer after being enrolled in law school. A contemporary of Handel, who also first studied law before being employed as a composer, was the extremely prolific German composer Georg Philipp Telemann. Telemann's father died when he was only four years old. His mother and other family members held other aspirations for him and actually forbade him from any musical activities. However, at a young age, Telemann found ways to study in secret, having written an opera at 12 years of age. At 16, he was sent away to school where his musical talents were allowed, even encouraged to flourish. But like Handel, he went on to university where he intended to study law. But also like Handel, he became a professional musician and composer instead. Let's listen to one of his 12 flute fantasies. Here is flutist Jean-Pierre Rampal performing the first one in A major. That was Jean-Pierre Rampal playing the flute fantasy in A major from the Twelve Flute Fantasies by Georg Philippe Telemann. As we move into the classical era, we don't have to look too far to find another example of a lawyer-come-composer. 
we find two of the most famous names of composition, in fact, of all time, in the transition to this era, Bach and Mozart. However, perhaps not the Bach and Mozart you are expecting. Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach was the third son of Johann Sebastian Bach, and interestingly, the composer we just discussed, Georg Philipp Telemann, was his godfather. C.P.E. Bach, as we call him, was one of four Bach children to become professional musicians. All four were trained in music by their father. However, living under the royal patronage system, both father and sons understood that a university education helped prevent a musician from being treated as a servant. Karl, like his brothers, pursued advanced studies in jurisprudence at the University of Leipzig. He obtained a degree, but never practiced law. A few months after graduation, the young Bach was appointed in the service to the Crown Prince Frederick of Prussia at Berlin. Upon Frederick's accession to the throne, becoming Frederick the Great, C.P.E. Bach became a member of the Royal Orchestra. He was by this time one of the foremost musicians in Europe, and his compositions at this time included about 30 sonatas and concert pieces for harpsichord and clavichord. While in Berlin, Bach published an essay on the true art of playing keyboard instruments, which was immediately recognized as the definitive work on keyboard technique. It was lauded even by both Haydn and Beethoven. Later in life, C.P.E. Bach succeeded his godfather Telemann as Kapellmeister, or music director, at some of the main churches in Hamburg. After this move, he turned his compositional prowess to choral music. The first of his three most important was published soon after taking the post, the oratorio The Israelites in the Desert, a composition that some say foreshadows Mendelssohn's great work Elijah. C.P.E. Bach's choral output reached its apex with two other works, the Grand Cantata, The Resurrection of Jesus, and the double chorus Heilig ist Gott, a setting of the seraph song Holy, Holy, Holy from the throne room scene in Isaiah 6. This is that Holy, Holy, Holy performed by the Akademie für Alte Musik Berlin and the choral group Rias Kammerchor under the baton of Hans Christoph Radamann.
That was the music of Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, a work for double chorus titled Heilig ist Gott, taken from the Holy, Holy, Holy Song of the Seraphim in Isaiah 6. C.P.E. Bach, though the son of a famous composer, studied law early in life, but later in life became a great composer who lived up to his family name. Hans Christoph Rademann conducted the Akademie für Automusik Berlin and the Rias Kammerchorps in that recording. Also in the classical era, we have another famous name in the law student-turned-composer category, Mozart. But Johann Georg Leopold Mozart, the father of the famous Wolfgang Amadeus. Leopold was himself the son of a bookbinder. While a student in Augsburg, he became a skilled violinist and organist. His parents had planned a career for Leopold as a Catholic priest, however. This was not Leopold's own wish. Nonetheless, he was enrolled at the Benedictine University in 1737 to begin studying law and philosophy. But he was expelled from the university in 1739 for poor attendance. In 1740, Leopold began his career as a professional musician, becoming a violinist, though his greatest musical achievement, as considered by most, would be the training of his own children. Leopold is also revered as a pedagogue, or designer of musical curriculum. In 1755, he wrote a comprehensive treatise on violin playing. This work was published in 1756, the year of Wolfgang's birth. It was translated into other languages, making him well-known all around Europe. The work is still consulted by musicians today. Let's hear an interesting example of one of his compositions. Because of his association with the famous Mozart, we tend to think of Leopold as a strict disciplinarian. His views on music would be utterly solemn and serious. But I think this composition will help counteract that impression. See, Leopold Mozart was much concerned that his compositions have a naturalistic feel from time to time. His Jagdsymphonie for four horns and strings calls for shotguns. And his Bauernhochzeit, or peasant wedding, includes bagpipes, a hurdy-gurdy, a dulcimer, hoops and whistles, and pistol shots. Here is the first movement of the five-movement peasant wedding suite by Leopold Mozart. We're hearing Capella Savaria under conductor Paul Nemet. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. 
Today's episode is titled Passing the Bar, and in it we are sampling an array of composers whose original career paths were to become lawyers. That was the first movement of the five-movement Bauernhochzeit, or Peasant Wedding, by Leopold Mozart. We heard the Capella Savaria under conductor Paul Nemeth in a piece that included bagpipes, a hurdy-gurdy, a dulcimer, hoops, whistles, and pistol shots. Leopold Mozart had spent two years at a university to study law and philosophy. And as we move into the Romantic era, another great composer whose original study in higher education was law was Jean Sibelius, who lived from 1865 to 1957. Sibelius's father died of typhoid when he was only three years old. The family was left in debt, so his pregnant-again mother had to sell all they had and move back in with her own widowed mother. So Jean Sibelius was raised by his mother and grandmother, and his uncle became his father figure and also his musical advisor. He gave his nephew a violin when Jean was 10 years old and later encouraged him to maintain his interest in composition. After graduating from high school in 1885, Sibelius began to study law at the Imperial Alexander University in Finland, but showing far more interest in music, soon moved to the Helsinki Music Institute, now called the Sibelius Academy. Here he studied composition for the first time, having been totally self-taught to that point. Regardless of his late start, today he is widely recognized as Finland's greatest composer and through his music helped Finland to develop a national identity while striving for independence from Russia. His most famous work even is called Finlandia, which I played in a previous episode. One of my personal favorite compositions by Sibelius, though, is his violin concerto, Now, I don't have time to play all three movements, so if I had to pick one to play for you, it would have to be the luscious second movement. Here it is with violinist Ann-Sophie Mutter and the Staatskapelle Dresden under André Previn.
That is music for life. Violinist Anne-Sophie Mutter, conductor André Previn, and the Staatskapelle Dresden performed that exquisite recording of the second movement of the Violin Concerto in D minor, Opus 47, by the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius, a composer who went to college to study law and later transferred to the Helsinki Music Institute, now called the Sibelius Academy, to study composition. Another composer from the Romantic era who fits into this discussion is Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Peter began piano lessons at age five. His parents were initially supportive as he quickly passed the skills of his teacher. They hired a music tutor and encouraged further piano study. However, no matter the level of ability, the only musical careers available in Russia at that time were either as a teacher in an academy or as an instrumentalist in one of the imperial theaters. Both careers were completely without social status, providing income scarcely more than that of a peasant. Therefore, his parents decided he would study law in St. Petersburg. He went away to school at age 10. Tchaikovsky was terribly homesick, to say the least, and when his mother died when he was 14, he made his first serious attempt at composition, a waltz in her memory. While at school, he was allowed to continue his piano studies, but due to the lack of possible employment in the field of music, Tchaikovsky was told to finish his coursework, which he did. He graduated and even held a post in the Ministry of Justice for three years. Enter the Grand Duchess Elena Pavlovna and her protege, pianist and composer Anton Rubinstein. She funded the Russian Musical Society. The aim of that organization was to find and support local Russian musical talent, as previous Tsars had focused entirely on importing European musicians and composers. Tchaikovsky enrolled in its newly formed conservatory as part of its premier class. Rubinstein was impressed by Tchaikovsky's musical talent on the whole and cited him as a composer of genius in his autobiography. Once Tchaikovsky graduated from the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1865, Rubinstein's brother Nikolai offered him the post of professor of music theory at the soon-to-open Moscow Conservatory. Even though the fledgling new school could only afford a paltry salary, the offer was eagerly accepted. We're going to hear the first published piece by Tchaikovsky, written just two years after graduating. This Opus 1 is actually a set of two piano pieces. The first is called Scherzo alla Russe, which we are hearing here, performed by pianist Ina Heifetz. Heifetz played Peter Tchaikovsky's Opus 1, No. 1, the first published composition of his titled Scherzo alla Russe, 
After studying law in St. Petersburg and holding a post in the Ministry of Justice for three years, Tchaikovsky enrolled in the newly formed St. Petersburg Conservatory. And the rest is history. As we move into the 20th century, we find another composer and another Russian one whose original career path was to become a lawyer. Igor Stravinsky began piano lessons as a young boy, studying music theory and attempting composition. Despite his enthusiasm for music, his parents expected him to study law. Stravinsky enrolled at the university but rarely attended class. Around that time, he developed a relationship with the most prominent Russian composer of the day, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, famous for Scheherazade and Flight of the Bumblebee. After visiting Rimsky-Korsakov one summer, he offered that Stravinsky take private composition lessons from him instead of going to study in a conservatory. At this time, there was great civil unrest in St. Petersburg, including Bloody Sunday, and due to this national turmoil, he was prevented from taking his final law exams. Later, he was issued only a half-course diploma. But by then, he had already changed the course of his life, taking twice-weekly private composition lessons from Rimsky-Korsakov, whom he came to regard as his second father. These lessons continued until Rimsky-Korsakov's death. Stravinsky is remembered as one of the most influential composers of the 20th century. His three ballets, The Firebird, Petrushka, and The Rite of Spring, made instant impact and are still part of the standard repertoire today. His musical ideas caused composers to challenge all previous constructs for rhythm and musical structure. He truly was a conduit for musical revolution in a time of great unrest and revolution in his homeland. We are listening to a composition earlier in his compositional output, though, while under the influence of Rimsky-Korsakov. This is his Scherzo Fantastique, Opus 3. This is Pierre Boulez conducting the Cleveland Orchestra.
That was the Cleveland Orchestra under the baton of Pierre Boulez performing Igor Stravinsky's second orchestral composition, Scherzo Fantastique. We were discussing Stravinsky because he originally began studying law, per his parents' wishes, but later began studying composition privately with Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. That piece we just heard was a work that Stravinsky had told Rimsky-Korsakov about and said it would be a fantastic scherzo that he would call Bees and was likely influenced by Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee. Now let's get into our Classroom Corner segment where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. In today's episode, we are studying composers who also studied law. Have you ever heard of students who were told to stop wasting their time pursuing music to focus their energies on a more economically stable career? I certainly have. In today's Classroom Corner, let's explore how the study of music can actually prepare someone for a career outside the musical arts. There is so much research and discussion on this subject that we can only scratch the surface here. At the elementary level for years, there have been teachers who complain that pulling students out of their regular curriculum, such as reading and math, into twice-weekly music programs is wasting precious educational time. However, researchers in Hamilton, Ohio, proved that students participating in music pullout programs scored higher on the reading, math, and citizenship portions of the Ohio proficiency test over their peers who did not have these pullout music classes. In high school, we find similar results. According to a 2001 report by a nationally recognized nonprofit organization known as the College Board, music student scores were on average 60 points higher on the verbal section and 43 points higher on the math section compared to students with no musical training. And the longer a student has had music instruction, the greater the SAT improvement. Those with at least four years of instruction scored an average of 544 as opposed to 482. According to a New York Times piece from October 12, 2013, many leaders of industry are shown to be well-trained musicians, some even attending college on full music scholarships. For example, Condoleezza Rice, trained to be a concert pianist. Alan Greenspan was a professional clarinet and saxophone player. There are many others, such as television broadcaster Paula Zahn, cellist, NBC chief White House correspondent Chuck Todd, French horn player, and Woody Allen, who says he practices the clarinet 30 minutes a day just to keep his embouchure strong, his mouth muscles. Even though he never intends to make a career out of playing music, he says, I have to practice every single day to be as bad as I am. So the effects of music on other disciplines extend far beyond the famous music and math connection. Many high achievers of industry who have also excelled in music explain that music opened them to more creative ways of thinking. Paul Allen, the billionaire co-founder of Microsoft, says music reinforces your confidence in the ability to create. And that White House correspondent, Chuck Todd, says there's a connection to a drive for perfection I've always believed the reason I've gotten ahead is by outworking other people, and he adds that it's a skill learned by playing that solo one more time, working on that one little section one more time. He adds, there is nothing like music to teach you that eventually, if you work hard enough, it does get better. You see the results. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we have explored the vast array of composers whose original career paths were to become lawyers in an episode I've titled Passing the Bar. 
We have discussed Handel, Telemann, Bach, CPE Bach, Mozart, Leopold Mozart, Jean Sibelius, Peter Tchaikovsky, and Igor Stravinsky, just a handful of the dozens of famous composers who went to school to study law first, some of them even practicing law or serving in the judicial system before becoming full-time musicians and composers. My special thanks to my wife and colleague Paula Malone for largely writing this episode. Remember, you can follow our program on Twitter or on Facebook at Music for Life PCG. And for our dessert today, where we hear an example from the popular or folk tradition or some lighter fare to end the program, we have a lyricist who helped co-write some of the greatest songs in the American Broadway tradition, but he himself was a law student first. Oscar Hammerstein II was born in New York City, Although his dad managed a theater and was a producer of vaudeville shows, dad was opposed to his son's desire to participate in the arts, and so young Oscar attended Columbia Law School from 1912 to 1917. When he was 19 and still a student at Columbia, his father died. After his father's death, Oscar began dabbling in theater, both in performing and writing. He ultimately quit law school to pursue theater. Throughout the next 40 years, Hammerstein teamed up with many other composers, including Jerome Kern. Their biggest hit, Showboat, had begun something entirely new, not quite operetta, yet not vaudeville either. It was the beginning of modern American musical theater, sometimes simply called Broadway. Later, he collaborated with Richard Rogers. The pair was hugely successful and created such smash hits as Oklahoma, Carousel, The King and I, South Pacific, and The Sound of Music. So for our dessert today, let's hear something from the original big hit that began it all, Showboat. Probably the most iconic song from the work is Old Man River. Here it is in an old recording sung by Paul Robeson. Old Man River, that old he must know something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling, he keeps on rolling along. He don't plant taters, he don't plant cotton. And damn that plantum is soon forgotten But old man river, he just keeps rolling along You and me, we sweat and strain Body all aching and wrecked with pain Tote that barge, lift that bail, get a little drunk and you land in jail. I get weary and sick of trying, I'm tired of living and scared of dying, but old man river. You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.